According to the government of the state of Israel, Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, is entrusted with the task of commemorating, documenting, researching, and educating about the Holocaust, remembering the six million Jews murdered by the German Nazis and their collaborators, the destroyed Jewish communities and the ghetto and resistance fighters, and honoring the righteous among the nations who risked their lives to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. The name Yad Vashem comes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. In chapter 56, the scripture reads, and to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name. That is a Yad Vashem that shall not be cut off, a memorial and a name. Several years ago, I had the opportunity for the first time with some of our congregation to travel to Israel. And the most profoundly moving, poignant and memorable time of that trip was touring Yad Vashem. It was, um, it was gut-wrenching. It was undoing. The experience was unlike anything I've had, partly because I, I frankly just haven't suffered a ton in my life and because I live in a culture that is less inclined toward a Yad Vashem. But I realized that it is part of the life of the Jewish people to remember. It is part of their contribution to the landscape of humanity. It was God's charge to his chosen people, the Hebrews, from the beginning, that they would remember and not forget who God is and what he has done for them. And so Yad Vashem was built that we would remember the horrors the unthinkable horrors of the Holocaust and the people whose lives were lost and the millions more whose lives were unalterably affected. Our title this morning, That We Would Remember. We're turning our attention to Jesus and his last days here in the month of April as we proceed toward the Easter season. Jesus last week in Jerusalem often referred to as his passion, his sufferings, the full expression of his love. And in Philippians chapter 2, the scriptures memorably teach, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So this is the Apostle Paul remembering and reflecting on the significance of Jesus' life, his incarnation, and his death. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, continue, he writes, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this phrase has stumped and puzzled to work out your salvation. Clearly, the Apostle Paul isn't saying do good works in order to earn your salvation because he makes clear in numerous other places we're saved by grace through faith and not by any works of our own. So what is he getting at? Continue to, therefore, to work out your salvation. Because Jesus, being in very nature God, came to the earth as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to God to the point of death, even the most ignoble and horrific death on a cross. Therefore, continue to work out your salvation. Wrestle with what it means to be saved in Christ, with what it means that Jesus came, lived this way, and died like that, why he would do it, and why that is so profoundly significant for us. Work that out. And that's really what we do. That takes center stage, that wrestling, that fear and trembling, that working out, puzzling through and putting together how salvation in Christ works. That's the work of Jesus' passion season. Paul goes on to describe this wrestling through, this working out of our salvation in more and more practical terms, and then concludes this portion of his letter to the Philippians in the next chapter and in verse 10, where he says, as for me, I want to know Christ. That's what salvation means for me. I don't want to get saved, put a stamp on it, call it good and go back to my life. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And at Easter time, millions of Americans and people around the world come to church, come back to church, turn their attention anew to Christ because something in us says yes, resonates with this truth and says, I too, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and rightly so justly purposed. We ought to want to know that. It's the most significant event in the history of the world. Jesus conquered death. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is, Scripture says, available to and at work in us as believers. I want to know that power. I want to apprehend it. I want to know Christ, and rightly so. He goes on to say, I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so the appeal to this passage dwindles on a pretty steep decline. Think about it. American Christians, even the most casual among us, at Easter, we renew something that's authentic. There are a lot of cynical pastors at Easter time. I'm not one of them. I'm amazed that people want to know Jesus. If they've got a finger to lift, I want to meet them there. I want to invite them in. I want us to make our Resurrection Sunday service glorious. And I want us to welcome, call them whatever kitschy Christian name you want to call them behind their backs, if you get good with that and God. But when people come, we welcome them that they would turn their eyes to Jesus, that they would lift up their eyes to the mountain and say, whence comes my help? That is a glorious thing. That's the work of God's grace drawing people. And I think that's amazing. That they say, I want to know Christ. Woohoo! And the power of his resurrection. Yeah! And a fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. 
by becoming like him at not just anyone's death or death in general, but by becoming like him at his particularly horrific and gruesome death. Oh man, look at the time. (laughs) And it's crickets, right? The enthusiasm around this convocation, it's a pretty steep decline as we go through the verse. We all want to know Christ and the power, but sharing in suffering, I, I mean, I think even the, the most authentic seeker among us is like, bah, I'm good, man. I'm good with that. I don't need that. But here's the thing. Knowing Jesus and his power means sharing in his sufferings. Knowing Jesus and experiencing the power that raised Christ from the dead means sharing in his sufferings. Second Timothy says this is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we'll also live with him. Jesus said on Thursday night of Passion Week or Holy Week, his last week of life before he culminated in his death on the cross. On Thursday night, celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he took bread after supper. He broke it. He gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks for it and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. To know Jesus is to remember the actuality of his life, the horror of his death, To understand his life is to understand his death. And to know him is to know all he experienced and all he went through. In high school, I I had a friend who shocked me one day. This was a boarding school. And so these were kids that at 15 uh, left home and went to live in dorms through their adolescent years. I commuted and lived in the town, but most of my friends uh, lived that way. And so I was in the dorm one evening and a friend told me um, in, a, in a moment of vulnerability that he, well, I said, man, it must be hard, right? Living away from home. Uh, naively, I thought, being away from your parents, it's gotta be tough. Uh, and he's like, no, nah, it was a relief. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he, and he went on to tell me how he had grown up being periodically abused at home. And being away at boarding school was a, a respite for him. And that, that was hard for me. I felt tense and uncomfortable. I wanted to retreat. I looked around. I fiddled with my hem, the hems of my jeans. I brushed lint off of myself with nervous energy bubbling over. And all I wanted to do was be anywhere else. But it occurred to me later that I didn't really know my friend until he told me this. I knew a version of him that he might have held out for casual consumption. But to know him is to know the depths of what he went through, even the horrors. So the question is, how do we share in the suffering of another? He says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings. How do you share in the suffering 
of another. Well, the first and most literal and obvious way is to experience similar pain. There's a solidarity for people that went through and survived the Holocaust together or went through World War II or Vietnam together. If you went through something difficult and you can commiserate, you very literally share in another's sufferings. And some of us have that opportunity. And I think support groups are so powerful for community life in that regard. Because to walk through a painful or difficult season is hard under any circumstances. It's nearly impossible to walk through it alone. But when we have the support of brothers and sisters who are walking a similar road, it gives us strength. Perhaps there's another way, which is general solidarity with people who have suffered in their suffering because we too have suffered in a different way. But I know what it feels like to feel pain. And so I get you, man. I feel you, right? That's another way we share in the suffering of another. For most of us and most of the people we meet, though, it's a third way. We enter it, the suffering of another, by hearing embracing, and then remembering. The real connection point with my friend in high school wasn't the moment he told me this. That was the test. That was the risk he took. It was a week later when we were hanging out on Friday night again, whether I acted like everything was the same and uncomfortable as I felt by his shocking vulnerability, just pretended like it didn't happen. Or whether I said, man, awkwardly and in my clunky teenage way, what you told me last week, man, that's rough. I, I, that's hard, man. So sorry. I don't even know that I had very mature, I'm sure I didn't have very mature words to say, but it's in hearing, taking in and then remembering that we most meaningfully share in the sufferings of another most of the time. And just think about it. Have you ever suffered and then confided in somebody? When you felt heard, when you felt seen, was probably when that somebody not only took it in, but then remembered. And so Jesus said, do this to remember. And this introduces a significant challenge for most of us because we, by little fault of our own, were born and raised in, drank in, breathed the air of, and swim in an ocean full of a deep and decided cultural distaste for the uncomfortable, for the hard. We don't share in suffering very much. We, in fact, buy, sell, and purvey a million products to relieve pain faster and faster, to make life easier. We were raised to believe, most of us, that we're entitled to a happy ending. And that the happy ending, you know, it makes it all good. Like I would want to look at my friend and say, oh man, I'm so glad you're here now. But hey, you're in a school where the world is your oyster. You're going to probably go on to be a Fortune 500 CEO or a senator or something. And so good for you. Way to overcome. All right. We want to believe that the happy ending 
makes it all good, makes it all okay. But you know what? Our culture feeds us that from day one. I mean, the, can you think of a Disney movie with an unhappy ending? Of course not. Everything as a child that reinforces what it means to live says not only that happy endings are most of the time false, but that you're entitled to one. And what's more, that the happy ending's just gonna make it all go away. Like, listen, Cinderella had massive lifelong trauma to work through. I mean, years of therapy to undo getting locked in the steps and forced to manual labor while your sisters are favored and no gown or slippers or hot boyfriend is gonna make that better. Like odds are low that things worked out with the prince anyway. Your first boyfriend out of trauma. How many of you know that doesn't usually amount to a recipe that, for a lasting relationship? Like more likely he's gonna be absorbing all of her inner damage as she works it out. But Cinderella had a long road ahead of her. Nobody talks about that. It's happily ever after that we are told is our birthright. Because we're, after all, us. Rich, peaceful Americans. Like, the closest we got was Thanos obliterating half the life in the galaxy. But even that, did anybody think that it was going to end there? That the end game was the end game? It was the non-end game. That's what the movie should have been called. We all knew that there was going to be some way, not so sneakily forecasted, because Dr. Strange has the cheat code, right? He can do this and go back in time, that they were going to go back in time and undo it. How happy ending after all. It's hard when that's what we are spoon-fed from birth to share in the suffering of another. Sharing in suffering is unnatural to us. And listen, we see it in church, don't we? I don't know about you guys, but I grew up every year with this, the, the special Easter season highlighted by Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday. And as I got older, I started wondering, what's so special about Palm Sunday? How did it get like a, a headliner service, a week of church named after it? All that happened was he walked into the city and a few kids waved palm leaves and people shouted for a minute. But you know what? They were shouting under false pretenses. Like if they were cheering for him, they were cheering for the wrong dude. They were cheering for an idea of him, which was quickly dispelled and they turned tails, right? Jesus, no sooner than he got through the parent tunnel, you know, like happy fingers, go get him, son, score a goal. And they, Jesus gets through the tunnel into Jerusalem and he turns right and goes to the temple and starts getting in their grill. They're like, yo, you're supposed to turn left and go get in Caesar's grill. That's what this is about. Remember, you're the Messiah. We've been waiting on this. Do your part already. Go tell him what's up. Now you're getting in our guy's grill, the priests, the Pharisees, they're us. What are you doing? And Jesus starts flipping the tables over and going off on them. And then they're like, forget this dude. He's not the real thing. And they're the same people that shouted, Hosanna, wave the palm leaves, happy finger tunnel. The same people are shouting crucify like four days later. Why are we celebrating the tunnel? You know why? Here's my take on it. 
Because it's happy. Because you get to have kids with palm branches and the songs are upbeat in major key and you get the feels. So we go from happy feels Sunday here, kind of skim through. We do a Good Friday service where like 27 people come. <laughs> Don't heavily advertise it because no feels there. And then we go back to Easter. Hey, more happy feels, more upbeat songs. We've disserved you. Why? Because our culture's penchant for happy endings and picking the, the upbeat parts. Sorry if I just undid all your happy Palm Sunday memories. Any, anyone in the kid Palm Branch Tunnel as a kid? Anyone do that? You're, you're in the Palm Branch Tunnel and you're waving it and you try to like tickle your older sister's ear with it as she comes in. That's ah, happy. Why am I messing with it? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And listen, this is an interesting word. This word seems out of place. The fellowship of sharing his sufferings. What's that about? Sharing his sufferings is unnatural, but if I'm going to deal with sufferings, I'm going to deal with it quickly and privately. I'm going to go in a room and close the door and ugly cry and maybe tell someone and then say like, let's not talk about this again. It's all good. And then come back out. But what I don't want to do if I'm going to do something hard is do it ongoingly with other people. I don't want to ugly cry in front of you. That's everything against the tide. But it's a fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. It's a, a corporate experience to which Jesus calls us and which is the pathway for authentically knowing Christ and authentically experiencing his power. Passion Tide is communal remembering. Passion Tide, the name of the series that we're entering to commemorate this Holy Week season. This time when we turn our focus to remembering him, it's communal remembering. We call it Passion Tide, borrowing a word from the ancient church because historically the church didn't skim through this time. Skimming through this time and hitting the highlights is a distinctly 20th century Western distortion of the gospel. Passion Tide, which simply Tide means season, is a season of remembering together the sufferings of our Lord that we might authentically know Him. The worst of the day was the children's memorial. Anyone been to Yad Vashem? The children's memorial, Peg? I couldn't, I couldn't function on the other side of it. I just sat down and cried. And what I found myself, to my shame, wanting to do, did you have this experience? In, in spite of myself, my impulse was I wanted to put my head down and walk fast through it. I wanted to just get through it. I wanted to have done it because I thought it's important to do, but I wanted to just get through it fast. But see, there's something to walk, and I wanted to do it alone. I wanted to get away from the team and just go fast and alone through it. But there's something to walking slowly through the suffering together. That's where we experience Christ. So I want to invite you this morning, perhaps unpopular, doesn't have all the feels like the kids say. 
the way that Palm Sunday does and then Easter does with all that, that little bit of mess of suffering in between. We'll do a, an Ash Wednesday service and if you want to come, you can come and do that. I realize it's probably not good marketing. I guess I don't care that much. I want to invite you to walk slowly through this season together. Next Sunday is our Passion Sunday service. Every year we commemorate and remember by not talking about its significance, just simply walking through the sufferings of Christ in His last week. It's among the most meaningful, certainly the most impactful, and, and I think um, personally and, and corporately significant times of our year. I encourage you to be here. Make it a point to be here. Let's, it's a special service. It'll be deeply, um, it'll be different and uh, I think deeply significant. Walking slowly through this time together. In Isaiah chapter 53, the Word of God teaches, he was despised and rejected. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, prophesying what the Messiah would look like. Despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he didn't open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. Think of the scene that we watched a few moments ago. Jesus had not so subtly begun to tell his disciples three times, he had told them, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer, be betrayed, and then be killed. And they're like, wonder what he meant by that. Ah, what's for dinner? And so there he is like agonizing at the prospect of what the next day would bring. And they're like, master, what's wrong? I think we hear what we want to hear sometimes. But Jesus' sufferings, they were comprehensive and vast. They went far beyond the physical pain of his beating and execution. And when you walk slowly through that, you can't help but ask in your heart, Lord, how could you do that? How could you be in very nature God? Be being mocked by people that literally you thought of. You thought of the design, the, the code of their DNA, and they're mocking you. So thoroughly misunderstanding you. They're ridiculing you. And they're spitting on you and laughing at you. They're tormenting you. How could you just take it? How could you be led like a lamb to the slaughter and stay? How could you stay silent? And why on earth would you? There's a point where near the end of Jesus' life, the scoffers said, come down from the cross if you're the son of God. And I can imagine his friends and his followers were saying the same thing, but not cynically. They're like, Jesus, 
We saw you multiply food in front of our eyes. We saw you cast out a demon from a guy that was so crazy he couldn't even be chained up. And then he was sitting there normal. We saw you touch a coffin and a boy came out. This is nothing for you. What are you doing, man? This is your moment. Come down. And he did nothing. I think the, the suffering of restraint, of knowing that the that, that cosmos is in the palm of his hand and he's staying there. Why would you do that? Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. This was earlier on when he was starting to talk plainly to him and telling him he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to get killed. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And listen, I have authority to take it up again. (laughs) I could end this. And so everyone's looking at him with pleading eyes going, end this. He had the authority. But he said, this is the charge I've received from my father. Now, friends, I've been through hard circumstances, even hard seasons of life, but always involuntarily. He did it willingly. When we walk slowly through that season of suffering, that passion tied together, and remember at each moment what he must have been thinking and what they must have been saying and how impossible that must have been. Inevitably, we ask, why would he go through all that? And so that's the rhyme and reason. This passion tide business could seem a little morbid, a little maudlin. Like what's done is done. Why do we need to dwell in it? But remembering that he suffered brings into focus why he suffered. It's just a, it's an involuntary causal connection that our human minds make. To know Jesus is to know what he went through. And to know what he went through is to grapple with why. Perhaps that's why he said, do this to remember me. Break bread and remember my body getting broken in front of your eyes. Drink wine and remember my blood running down the rough wooden cross. Isaiah 53 continues, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. 
This is why we remember. This is why we share in his sufferings. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being one with the Father and holding eternity ever in his sight, the author of life was nailed to a cross so that we could be forgiven and free. Jesus paid the debt that we couldn't pay so that we get a fresh start in life. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves because he loved us with an everlasting love. And friends, this season is an invitation to know him and thereby to experience the power of his resurrection. We're going to receive communion together this morning at the close of our worship time. If you would stand with me and those of you who are on the end or sitting closest to the end of the row on this, the south side of the auditorium, if you would just grab the bucket with the elements, take one of the self-contained communion element packets and hold on to it for just a moment. We're gonna receive these individually in a time of reflection here as we respond in worship in just a moment. Then once we've received them toward the end of the song. If those of you who are seated there would uh, grab the second bucket, you can pass that down the row and then you can just discard the empty packets in that second container. The Apostle Peter said, there is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. In Christ's sufferings is our salvation. And this morning I'd like to invite you to begin this month entering this journey of passion tide in solidarity with believers all around the world and all throughout Christian history for the last 2,000 years, walking slowly together the road to the cross, remembering Jesus and finding afresh or for the first time, our own salvation. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll invite me in, I'll come in and dine with you. I'll change your life. Lots of us have tried lots of things Maybe they've helped a little to mask the pain. Only Jesus has the power to heal your heart, to set you free from slavery to sin, to put your feet back on the path that God created for you to walk, to fulfill you, to give your life hope and purpose. Maybe this is the first time in a while. Maybe this is the first time ever. But friends, this is an opportunity to meet Jesus, simply to invite him in. I'm going to pray with you, and then we're going to worship together. And during the course of this song, if you would, as Jesus leads you, take the bread and the cup. 
and remember his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. He came to die and he died for you so that you can have a brand new start. And this, this can be that day. So Father, we, uh, we come together to the table one more time. Give us grace to remember. We confess we're squeamish and we confess we don't have much of a taste for suffering. Lord, would you meet us at this table? Jesus, would you reveal your love in our hearts? As we take this bread and this cup, would you show my friends, my brothers and sisters, how much you love us? And every one of you who would say for the first time or for the first time in a long time, Jesus, come into my heart. There's room in my heart for you. The word of God says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So Jesus, all of us who hear your voice this morning, we confess that we're sinners. Just go ahead and pray this in your heart along with me. You can just confess your sin to God. We confess that we need your forgiveness. Thank you that it is into your arms of love and mercy that we fall. Thank you that your mercy triumphs over punishment and judgment. And thank you that there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. So we receive that. We take that burden off. Think of like you've been carrying this heavy backpack and you take that thing off and throw it down. We walk lighter. We walk free. Lord, we believe that you are the Son of God. We believe that you triumphed over death. We choose to be the redeemed of God. We choose to remember you.